Hi, friends. You're listening to the Lessons from Dead Guys podcast, a work of Exile Liturgy. My name is Ryan Cagle, and we are here for our, I think, fifth interview of the not-so-ordinary time season. Today, we have Chuck McKnight uh, coming on the show to talk and uh, talk to us about his blog and, and his journey uh, of faith from answers in Genesis to Anabaptism and, and all other things, all kinds of things in between that. So stoked to have Chuck on today. Um, just a quick reminder, if you would like to get updates, in our monthly devotional, you can subscribe to Signpost, which is our monthly newsletter that's really more devotional than news. Uh, and you can find links for that in the bottom of the show notes. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon, you can. And I also want to just give some updates. Uh, we're going to continue kind of in the format that we've been doing. Um, after Easter, I, I moved away from the weekly format of me every single week uh, to every other week having an interview. Uh, through this season right now, just being a pastor, it's been just really um, better for me and a better format for me to just be able to work in and, and produce more quality stuff at the current point as we're going into the fall, which is one of the busiest times uh, for a youth pastor especially. And so we're going to continue with this format of every other week having an inter- interview, and I'm stoked for some of the interviews I have uh, scheduled between now and Advent, and I cannot wait uh, for all of them, I can't wait for you to hear from Chuck today and just the interviews I have coming up um, through the rest of the ordinary, ordinary time. And then for Advent, I've been working diligently on um, a very special kind of thing for Advent, and we're still way far away out, but I'm, I'm trying to get ahead of it. And so Advent is going to kind of focus primarily on one of my biggest influences, and that's Teilhard de Chardin, and I cannot wait to release a devotional and all that good stuff. And if you're signed up for signposts, like I mentioned earlier, you'll be sure to have all of that in your inbox before it ever happens so you can stay up to date. And so there's that. Be sure to subscribe. And so I'm going to turn it over to Chuck McKnight. No relation to Scott McKnight, but that doesn't make a difference because he seems like a really rad dude. And uh, he's going to talk to us, introduce himself, and uh, we'll go from there. All right, Chuck. Hey, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, So yeah, I'm Chuck McKnight. Uh, I blog at hippieheretic.com. And... You know, I just enjoy discussing theology and Christian living and anything else along that that spectrum of ideas. Uh, I'll kind of let you drive in terms of what we want to talk about, but yeah, I'm happy to be here. All right, so hippie heretic, which is kind of a very interesting title in my mind. I've been called a heretic more times than I can count, but probably never a hippie heretic. So, like I said, that's pretty interesting. And is that it's a self description? I know. I think we t- we talked about it a little bit before, but I would like our listeners kind of to know kind of the in and, in and outs of why you chose hippie heretic as uh, as kind of a self description. Yeah. So short answer is that these are both terms that people have called me. Um, the hippie side is more because I'm an Anabaptist. I'm a pacifist. Uh, I don't believe that violence is appropriate in any form. I don't believe that God uses violence. And then that kind of goes with heretic because if I don't believe God ever uses violence, that means I have to explain away all the violence in the Old Testament. And a lot of more conservative types think I'm rather heretical in how I do that. Uh, but in my thinking, why not just claim that, you know, Christian was originally a pejorative term, Anabaptist, Quaker, Methodist, all these different uh, branches of the church we look at today, those terms were given as a negative thing. And they were like, you know what, let's just claim that. Let's make it our own and kind of give it a counter narrative. So I'm the hippie heretic. I'm happy to own that. Gotcha. So you're just embodying those kind of what people, I guess, try to use as um, to negatively embodying it and embracing it just like like you said as as far as other people in church tradition have i really really like that um i've called myself uh your friendly neighborhood heretic a few times but i've never (laughs) officially used it in any form of of branding um sure so that's awesome i dig it and so, Chuck, just from your journey, I know you have a, an old blog that you were used to blog regularly, uh, I guess from your days when you worked for Answers in Genesis and things like that, and before you kind of began, um, I guess, transitioning to some different theology and ideas, and I'm sure there's some uh, transitional theology posts there, and I know now you're on Pathios, um, and you're, you're there in the progressive uh, Christian kind of um, subheading, and, um, and so... It, your story is just really cool to me, just what we've talked about and what I've read on your blog and, and how, you know, 
you went from this, you know, very much answers in Genesis, Ken Ham, which I can totally relate to. Um, I was, I was all down with Ken Ham. I was down with like, you know, Kirk Cameron, the way of the master, all that kind of refuting evolution and, and young earth creation and, and all those things. Um, very much fundamental. Not that those are the only tenets of, I guess, of evangelical theology, but some of those things I can definitely relate to. And like I said, I know in your blog you mentioned kind of the beginning of, I, I wouldn't say necessarily an unraveling, maybe a deconstruction or, or a, you know, a rediscovery of, of Christ in a new way um, found its genesis in the problem surrounding the traditionalist view of hell, which is also known as eternal conscious torment or, you know, you're going to just burn in hell forever. And so I think on your blog you kind of talked about or that kind of being the beginning, I guess, of your changing thoughts and your transitioning into some uh, other theological perspectives um, am I right in that, or am I did I miss that? Yeah, so hell has definitely been one of the the big topics that has pushed me along this journey of of shifting and rediscovering. Um, and back in you know my my fundamentalist days, it wasn't even so much a matter of like you know wondering how can God be merciful and loving and send people to hell. I kind of had the the view back then that whatever it means that God is love that we just kind of have to fit that into what the Bible actually says about God. So, you know, if God actually does torment people in hell for all of eternity, he still is loving simply because he's God. So it it wasn't really this, you know, more emotionally backed thing. Uh, instead, I was just looking at the Bible and what the Bible says. And when I came to all these passages that people always cited as support for eternal conscious torment, I was like, well, no, that's not really what it's saying. And by contrast, I saw a lot more passages that spoke to what's commonly called conditionalism or annihilationism, the idea that uh, God doesn't torment people forever. He just punishes them until they're wiped out of existence, and then they're no more, and it's done. Now, I've actually moved a bit beyond that perspective at this point, too, but that's kind of where I was initially. And uh, you mentioned I was working for Answers in Genesis, and... uh, as an employee of Francis in Genesis, you have to sign their statement of faith, agree to all the jots and tittles of their theology. And one of their points, even though it has nothing to do with creationism, is their view of hell, which is very traditional eternal conscious torment. Uh, because I was starting to shift on this and could no longer affirm that, I ended up having to leave Answers in Genesis. And then once I left Answers in Genesis and worked for a different company that didn't have a statement of faith, that kind of opened up everything to be able to question a lot more honestly and openly and, you know, follow where, where these things would take me. So yeah, the questioning of hell very much influenced my journey and kind of kickstarted, forced me out of that fundamentalist circle and brought me to a place where I can continue along the journey. Gotcha. Awesome. You know, I think for me, that was one of the big things too, um, was definitely my understanding of hell was probably the first major leap that I made. Um, and mine, I guess was probably more emotional to begin with. Um, and then it kind of led more into the deeper study of things, I guess. But, um, to clarify, I don't think there's anything wrong with that where I am today. In fact, I'd say that's morally upright and good to question hell on a purely emotional basis, even without scriptural backing to start. That's just not where I happened to be at the time. Yeah, yeah. So no, I didn't. I didn't take that negatively at all. But you know, like I guess for me, I kind of came to a place, and it, it was. I think a lot of it was really dissatisfaction within myself, um, and I think I, I projected it a lot onto the people around me as far as my frustrations. But probably more than anything, I was frustrated with myself because I just came to a place where I could not reconcile some of the things I said I believed, or the church said it believed at that time. My perspective of the church and. Um, and the experiences of God that I had had coming from, you know, the Pentecostal charismatic traditions, of course, I'm, um, I would definitely say uh, that I've had my fair share of mystical experiences or experiential kind of moments with the spirit um, that go beyond my rational thought or ability to even put into words. And so that that deep well of love that I experienced, I could not figure out how that could even correlate to eternal conscious torment. I couldn't. I could not fathom yeah. how they could coincide. And no matter how much I kind of just try to held them kind of in paradox or together, I just 
it was, it became exhausting. Um, mm-hmm. and it eventually ground me down into the point that I was done. I was done with church. I was done with, <laughs> I was done with all of it. I could not believe, but I was just done with it. I even remember getting to a point to where I remember praying, which is just really odd because I was praying. I was, I was weeping in my car on my way home and I asked God, I said, how I'm going to tell my wife that I don't believe in you anymore. And mm-hmm. which is just, you know, weird to begin with. <laughs> I'm talking to this guy who I say I don't believe in. And it's it's like I could not yeah. separate myself. I could not not believe in what I had experienced, but I could not reconcile what I experienced with what I had been taught or what I had believed for so long or what I seen put into practice. Um, and so hell definitely began to be one of the first places I transitioned. And the person the, the person that really gave me kind of room to breathe was St. Uh, Isaac of Nineveh. When he, his his talk of Gehenna and God's wrath, um, I decided to re- start reading him for whatever reason. I don't I don't even know at the time really, and it completely was like, oh man, I can believe something different because before that, you know, I was ready to burn Rob Bell at the stake for Love Wins, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so definitely for me that was the beginning. It was um, I couldn't I couldn't reconcile the two things. I couldn't reconcile my experience with the belief. Uh, in eternal conscious torment. And so I began to make a similar, I guess, journey. I didn't lose a job um, or anything like that. I, I, it did eventually lead to me stepping down from a five, you know, being a, at a church for five years on a pastoral staff for five years. Um, but which was not fun, but it, uh, cause it was not an easy kind of clean break. I'm not sure how it was for you at Answers in Genesis, but it was, um, it was really messy and really hard for a long time and uh, still is even today. But uh, it definitely for me started with questioning eternal conscious torment, I think, uh, and which kind of, I guess, just put me on that, you know, slippery liberal slope of theology, you know, <laughs> that I've kind of dove headfirst down since. Um, and so uh, as far as the, you said you've moved past that view, uh, maybe to some extent. And um, who, who was it that kind of, is there any person, I know you said, uh, you know, is really looking at the scriptures, but was there ever an outside influence that kind of influenced your thinking of kind of like me, it was, you know, St. Isaac and, uh, that maybe made you question that perspective or that particular reading of scripture that you had held for so long? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I'm always reading all sorts of stuff and it'd be kind of hard to pinpoint, um, like a particular book or author that most influenced me in that um one i could point to after the fact it wasn't necessarily uh the one that made the switch for me but the one looking back that i i would recommend as the best resource is actually brad drazak's book uh her gates will never be shut yeah um uh, i don't know if you've read that one or not but it is a just a fantastic uh very organized and systematic but immensely readable approach to the whole topic and I, I differ with them very slightly, only in that I still see annihilationism as a slight possibility uh, in that because I don't believe God forces his will on anyone, I believe people can resist his love. And if they resist his love to the furthest extent, it might be possible to basically opt out of humanity and will yourself into nothingness. I, I hold that as a, a slight possibility, but I'm very hopeful in the strongest sense that that's not going to happen for anyone, that everyone will come around to God's grace eventually. Right. But anyway, uh, that would be the book I would absolutely point anyone to who is interested in uh, looking into this further. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, Brad, like I said, had him on you know a few weeks ago. Brilliant. His work is been immensely impactful on my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's cool is like, I guess kind of what you said, your view is, you know, how I guess I, I would describe it as an open-handed conditionalist who sincerely hopes that God's uh, grace will eventually melt the hard stone, you know, hard stone hearts of men. And um, I think I, I'm probably, I'm probably personally right there with you. I think, um, you know, I have friends who tell me they believe they're one point Calvin's, they believe in irresistible grace and that's it. And, uh, you know, that eventually all will, you know, it's just, it's a matter of a fact in their mind. And to me, I just don't, I can't go that far. Um, but I definitely think it should be one of our greatest hopes as Christians, which is to me is this even, even just the hope of is so opposite from kind of the perspectives I held for so long. 
Um, because you Absolutely. know, yeah. you didn't want, you didn't want everybody to be saved when it came really down to it. I, I know for me anyway, like, it seems like my experience within the fundamental evangelical circles is that, you know, if you even mentioned that people would just, you know, snarl at the idea, you know, they didn't, why would we want, you know, we, we say we're the people who want all people to be saved. We say, you know, we're, we're right there along with God wishing that none will perish, but the whole idea really just seems bizarre and disgusting, I think, to much of fundamental evangelicalism. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think that's kind of the, uh, the older brother syndrome, you know, in the, the parable of the prodigal son that, uh, the father welcomes the prodigal back unquestioningly throws him a banquet and the older brother is ticked off because he feels like somehow he's being slighted by the inclusion, the inclusion of the prodigal. Uh, and that's not the case. The father doesn't have any less love for the older brother because of his welcoming the younger. Um, but for some reason we have this sort of scarcity mindset with God's love that if he's loving all those others, somehow he's loving us less. And uh, that's scary for people, but it doesn't make God actually love anyone any less. Right, right. You know, and something, um, in not shifting too much, but in, in reading uh, your blog talking about the battle of inerrancy, uh, something I kind of picked up on was just how, may, like, it was, you know, this intense love for Scripture that kind of drove you um, in the direction that you, you are now, I guess. And I think, mm-hmm. I, think I, I relate to that a lot. I think one thing I definitely took from my very fundamentalist evangelical kind of upbringing was that I have this deeply embedded love and appreciation for the Scriptures. I've never been able to shake that, um, even when I wasn't even sure— if what they said, you know, the scripture said was true, I've always just been so captivated by them and and like just consumed in them. You know, I was the I was the teenager who, you know, like that's what I did for fun was you know study the Bible, which is looking back at some of my notes it was awful. You know, <laughs> a, a teenager <laughs> left alone with the Bible is just not necessarily always the best thing. Martin Luther's Grand Project has caused um, a lot of unintended consequence, I think, <laughs> but. Um, yeah. You know, it's for me, it was that deep love. I, I had so many people tell me, oh, you just don't, you know, you're just bending the Bible, you're abusing the Bible, you don't care about the Bible, you don't care about the scriptures. And so when I when I read your kind of story and your talk about inerrancy, that was one of the things I picked up on was just that it was your 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 deep appreciation and love for the scriptures that eventually drove you to where you're at now. At least that's kind of what I perceived anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I some people say I don't have a high view of scripture because I don't believe in inerrancy, but I'd say it's just the opposite. It's precisely because I have the highest view of the scripture. You know, it's, it's the greatest book we have in the world. Um, it's because I have such a high view of scripture that I don't want to force it to say something it isn't saying. Um, and so when I come up against these contradictions in the Bible and whatever excuses and workarounds you may try to get to make it seem like there aren't contradictions, there are. It's full of them. <laughs> right. And to me, it's it's not faithful to the text to try to force an agreement where there isn't one. A high view of Scripture says, let's take this text for what it actually is. Let's acknowledge what it's saying here and also what it's saying here that contrasts with what it said earlier. Um, and remember that it's, it's not a single book. It's a library. Uh, it's written by so many different authors. Um, and I believe that all of it's inspired. I, I do still believe in inspiration, but it's God-inspired and human-authored. It's a, a co-authorship between God and humans. So I'm going to expect both the divine truth and the human error to creep in. And so the, the process of studying Scripture must necessarily include wrestling with Scripture, um, looking at the different views presented therein, seeing how all these different people through the ages have understood God and not just take that as a one-to-one, they related to God this way, therefore we must relate to God this way, but use that as a springboard for your own relationship to God and say, taking the whole context of Scripture, taking this grand narrative and where we are today, what does this mean for us? And how do we best wrestle through all these Scriptures and come out with something that looks like Jesus? And that, that there is the most important thing, you know, when Jesus says something, that needs to take priority because he is the word of God. Right. The Bible, we call it the word of God sometimes. It never calls itself the word of God. Um, 
if it's to be the word of God, it must be the word of God in a secondary sense. Jesus himself is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. And anything else that the Bible may say must bow to his authority in the end. Right. I'm totally with you. Um, And of course, that even leaves so much room for difference, you know, within that and diversity of approach, even even holding kind of that that perspective. You know, you still have so many people, I think, that approach the scriptures um, with that mindset, but still come away with, you know, some very different things. And um, sure, you know, I think for me, like I said, it was my my deep love and appreciation for the scriptures that kind of led me to where I was or where I am now, I guess, and where I guess I'm going because I've still continue to just be obsessed with, with the Bible. Uh, my, I, I was joking yeah. with my pastor and, um, I said something about reading the, you know, the daily office or that day or whatever. And he was like, Oh, you liberal types read the Bible. <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah. I was like, yeah. of course. Yes, we do. Yes. <laughs> but you know, I, I had that so many times. Oh, you just, you don't even care about the scriptures. You have such a low view of scripture. And I was like, no, you have no idea. It's so, it was such a relief to finally let the scriptures be what they are and, um, mm-hmm. and not, not try to make them into what I, you know, I was, it's it's really exhausting to try to make the scriptures be what you want them to be. Um, and when you just let them go and you let them do their thing and disagree and we can wrestle with them and, and things like that. And um, it can be really much more life-giving than trying to come up with all these different loopholes to make these contradictions or disagreements, you know, work, uh, which is in the end super exhausting. <laughs> like, I don't know how anyone can keep up, you know, seriously keep up um, that kind of, I guess, act, uh, their whole life. Like I, I think about some of the fundamentalist people, uh, that are, I guess, in the more mainstream and it's not that they're, um, ignorant of the scriptures or anything like that, but I just, I don't know how they do it without just getting burned out and done. Um, sure. You know, well, and even once you've, you've worked through that and you've come up with your solution to this contradiction, nine times out of 10, you end up missing the actual point of both passages in the process it's like you come to these these things and the whole task is just to find a way to make them not disagree with each other but then you never get around to actually looking at what both passages were trying to say what they're actually trying to teach us how they're actually trying to live which is way more important than what theological insight we might get from it as important as that is too um we just we get all these workarounds and then we miss the forest for the trees. Right. You know, and for me, reading some of the early church fathers and how they approach scripture, kind of um, some of them, you know, very allegorically, especially the Old Testament and some of those texts of terror and, and different things like that really, really opened, you know, up a door for me to be like, oh, my gosh, I can finally breathe. You know, <laughs> I, I don't have to force yep. this to work anymore. Um, and then one of the things I think for me was real. um just studying how the Jew, the Jewish rabbis approach the scripture and how they do it. They approach the scripture in such a radically different way than what we do. Um, and in the way, in what ways Jesus did. And, um, that just kind of blew my mind, you know, realizing that they don't, they don't, tr- they don't even treat the whole inerrancy thing. You know, once I realized how, how new that whole idea was, I was just like, Oh man, you know, I've just stumbled onto a whole different world that I didn't even know existed. Um, and so, you yeah, know, so inerrancy is brand new past <laughs> 200 years or so tops. Right. And we, so much of Western Christianity treats it like it is, you know, it came out of the mouth of Jesus, which is really funny to me because we have Jesus like intentionally contradicting <laughs> the Torah or, you know, yeah. rewriting or restating or the apostles over and over again are quoting the scripture, the Old Testament scriptures and completely flipping their meaning, you know, completely mm-hmm. using them out of context and completely using them in a way that was unintended and in a fresh way and to drive home their point um and so it's just really funny to me that now in hindsight that i just kind of had that view you know and um you know it was one thing for jesus to be 100 god and 100 man but you know the scriptures are 100 god <laughs> which doesn't make any sense looking back but that's you know that's kind of how a lot of evangelicalism approaches it we believe that in the hypostatic union, you know, we believe in the incarnation as the, as the incarnation, but when it comes to the scriptures, they're 100% God, you know? And so we elevate them. Mm-hmm. It becomes father, you know, son and Holy, Holy Bible, not father, son and Holy spirit or, or whatever. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. we raise it to a place that it does damage to it. It, it does, it does violence against the scriptures, I guess, in my opinion, but, um, we well, you know, I, 
what what you're saying is just making me think of something here. I'm I'm just going to kind of riff here on something I haven't thought through. Maybe not my best idea, but it it's interesting to me with you talking about how uh, even conservative uh, evangelicals certainly affirm Jesus, humanity, and divinity, but they make the Bible kind of more divine than Jesus. Thinking about that too, though, one of the major problems I've seen uh, recently, especially in conservative evangelical theology is a depreciating of Jesus' humanity. Not that anyone would deny he was truly human, but that they don't want to admit for elements of his humanness. Um, so, for example, omniscience is, is a big one. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people want to insist that Jesus, as a human, had to know all things. Um, even though Scripture says he grew in wisdom and knowledge, right. um, even though to be fully human in my opinion, would mean he'd have to have that that growing uh, capability, that, that ability to learn things. Um, anyway, it's just interesting to me thinking about uh, that depreciating of Jesus' humanity coinciding with the same group of people who depreciate the humanity of the Bible. I don't know. Like I said, I'm kind of riffing no, here. No, that's just, just I mean, some that's, thoughts, that's a good observation. I think. Worth putting it out there. I think that's a really good observation. You know, and I, th- I think you're. That's definitely the case. I think for me, like really good incarnational theology was not anything I was ever given. Everything was, mm-hmm. you know, it was very much. I, I would say Platonic. You know, Platonic. It was very. Um, all about everything, you know, material. It was really, I guess, Gnostic even um, in in many ways. And so, you know, the humanity of Jesus was not very important. The only thing that was really important about the humanity of Jesus was that he came to die in our place, you know, um, and pacify God's wrath and everything else, you know. So that was pretty much the extent of what Jesus being human meant, is that he came and put on flesh so he could die in our place. And that was pretty much it. Um, And that's, for me, where kind of the Eastern Orthodox Church completely flip my world upside down is that um with absolutely just get obtaining a robust and and beautiful um understanding of the incarnation completely um changed so much for me and i know i think we, when we talked before you said you know you consider yourself anabaptist but you you pull a lot from the eastern orthodox um in the orthodox tradition um and so same here i I, I love um and that's one reason i love brad's work so much is because he's like Mm-hmm. Super ecumenical, but very much you know orthodox, and um, I, I have such appreciation for it. I'm not going to go to the Orthodox Church and, and convert unless the whole you know the Holy Spirit tells me to. Uh, if I feel like I'm being led in that direction, um, I'll go and have service with them or whatever, and I'll deeply appreciate their theology and the history um, for how much it's liberated uh, me and the Spirit's liberated me through it. Um, but you know, I, yeah, definitely. I think evangelicalism has a very very anemic incarnational theology. And I think if we could recapture that, then we could re we could recapture, you know, we could stop minimizing Jesus's, you know, humanity, his humanness, you know, um, it would do us so much, so much, so much better. Um, we, it, it would change a lot of things, but I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic in that when it comes to that particular subject, I guess. Yeah, I I have no idea how it's going to play out in terms of uh, the evangelical theology coming around to all that. I, I hope it does, but I, I think the Eastern Orthodox Church has so much to teach us in terms of this. I, I like to say that I'm Anabaptist in ecclesiology, uh, but in terms of theology proper, I'm almost entirely uh, in line with the Eastern Orthodox. They just, they didn't have, well... Uh, they do have Augustine. They they consider him a saint, but they never built their theology on Augustinian notions, right. uh, like original sin. And you know, he kind of laid the foundations that later became satisfaction theory and then penal substitutionary theory. Right. But anyway, they, they've they've got from the beginning this solid, robust theology that is based, like you said, on the incarnation uh, more than just about anything. And you know, you get into theosis or uh, deification divinization whichever term you want to use for it something that's almost entirely missing from most evangelical presentations of the gospel but in my thinking is central to everything yes for sure you know it's really cool looking back on a lot some of the things that i was handed (coughs) in the pentecostal tradition really primed me for like 
uh, theology around theosis and divinization and things like that. Um, it didn't quite go far enough to really give me any, give me the meat of it, but it kind of primed me open, I guess, open my heart to those ideas. Um, and so like, um, hmm. I think um, like Maximus Confessor, uh, his whole oh, some of his whole things revolving around theosis and divinization completely. Like again, I, I've said this about everyone I've mentioned so far. Just changed my life, you know. It just completely just flipped, <laughs> you know, my world uh, upside down. And I definitely think that the Western Church, the Evangelical Church specifically, needs desperately needs to get and grasp hold of a much more robust and beautiful incarnational theology that's very lacking because um, I think a lot of it leads to the fact that, you know, Jesus, they're vampire Christians. They just, we just want Jesus for his mm. blood. You know, nothing about his actual humanity or how he lived really matters so much as just get to the cross, get resurrected ascends, so we can make sure we get to heaven when we die too. And we just, yeah. we just want him for his and blood. And it's such a man-centered theology. You know, it's all about what can God do for us. Right. I think uh, one of the first times I actually got called a heretic was I wrote a blog called I'm Not Going to Heaven and Neither Are You. <laughs> and just, you know, just thinking about it, it was just one of those things because, again, being Pentecostal, I was very deeply embedded in, like, you know, eschatology and the rapture. And I don't know if you remember or, yeah. when I was talking to Brad uh, Jurisic, I, ta- I talked to him about how, you know, I even had these handmade tracks that I gave out to people when I was, like, in ninth and tenth grade, you you know about the end of the world you know and how i i lived on rapture ready.com <laughs> and way of the master and all yeah. these different places um and so like the, oh yeah way of the master I, I took that class that dude, was i like, i had like every ta- terrifying and in retrospect so horrible. yes and i i had i mean i had every evangelism approach like they had on their websites memorized. Like I was doing it. I was quoting all the bad off the wall stuff about bananas and like I can't even, you know, there's all kinds of just stuff that would just was just ridiculous. But um I thought, man, if I could just stand on the street corner and tell people about how they're condemned by God because they broke the Ten Commandments and somebody could spit in my face, then I could die holy, you know. <laughs> like I could finally you know. be holy, you know. I gotta and do your martyr's duty. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, it's it's been a wild journey from that. So um, I can't imagine working in that um, kind of the whole with Ken Ham. I, I've, I've become, in the last few years, overly critical probably of Ken Ham and his overarching project. And um, I've tried to tone it down a little bit now that I'm... Overarching... No pun intended. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've I've tried just to ignore him really in the last year, especially since I came back on pastoral staff <clears throat> at a church, just because we have some people that love Answers in Genesis and Ken Ham and Young Earth Creation, and so I never want to just really rub anybody the wrong way. If we have a conversation, that would be different, but I don't know. So my whole, like, Tweeting at Ken Ham, you know, go home, you're drunk. Is those kind of days I've kind of railed back on a little bit. And I don't know if it's maturity or what, but yeah. um, <laughs> I, I'm not so heavy-handed on those things anymore. I guess I'm just uh, I'm tired of fighting with I guess those kind of things. So, so that might be a mark of uh, maturity. I don't know, but and so you so hell was kind of this first um, thing that kind of started you on this projection. Uh, you know, in the projecting in the way that you did and going in the way that you did. And then um, would you say, like, what was the next big thing? Was it, did you encounter some kind of, was it anabaptism that really kind of shook you up after that? Or was there, there something else? What was the next, I guess, block to fall? Uh, <clears throat> it's hard to pick or to, to, to remember, like, exactly which stages happened in which order and all that. One of the next big ones, at least I can say, uh, was definitely my coming to understand uh violence and how i believe jesus taught about violence um and so yeah the the anabaptist tradition i kind of i fell in love with the anabaptist tradition largely because of their stance on nonviolence. um you know they're they and the quakers are the only major branches of the church that have for their entirety been nonviolent and made that a, a central point of what they stand for um <clears throat> but yeah, as I read the words of Jesus and the apostles, uh, I can't believe that there is a place for violence. Um, and it really just 
ultimately comes down to that command to love your neighbor and even love your enemy. I don't know how I could possibly love my enemy while running a sword right. through uh, It's as simple as that. Um, and I, I understand there are always these extreme worst case scenarios, you know, someone's breaking into your house and going to kill your family. What do you do? And, you know, I got to be honest, I don't know what I do in those cases, but in my mind, it's, it's a matter of determining at the very least, if I'm going to be violent, it has to be a last case scenario. You know, the, my first instinct, my first thought should be what's a nonviolent way I could defuse this situation. Uh, and you know, of course it's, let's pray in the moment and ask God to, to give us a way out. Uh, there are so many stories um, that, that that exact thing happens and the, the, some miraculous thing or just some perfectly natural looking thing that coincidentally occurs uh, just diffuses a situation. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of going on a tangent, but yeah, nonviolent would be the next, the next big thing. And then with that, I mentioned earlier, if I'm going to believe that as Christians, we're supposed to be nonviolent, then what do I do about the old Testament where not only is it describing a whole lot of violence going on, but in many cases, God is actually the one commanding the violence. What's going on here? Did he change between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Um, and of course, any Orthodox theology has to say, no, God didn't change. Uh, so what's happening? And that then leads into the view of the scriptures, and we already talked a good bit about inerrancy. Uh, ultimately, inerrancy fell as a result of my commitment to nonviolence, because I just couldn't hold those two together. Right. You know, I think that nonviolence was definitely pretty close for me, kind of, um, in the transition. I tell people I'm Anabaptocostal. <laughs> well, that's one of the descriptors. <laughs> um, you know, and I think definitely the Anabaptist tradition really helped put that into perspective for me. Um, I think probably after hell for me, it was actually eschatology, the rapture, and all that, and uh, learning to read Revelations much more. Reve- I just said Revelations. That's the second time I've done this on this podcast. I'm done. <laughs> I'm, I am not worthy. <laughs> John's Revelation. Learning to read John's Revelation responsibly was kind of the big thing for me, but then definitely for sure the nonviolence, because I remember looking back, and I was super pro-war as a teenager. I was super pro-all, you know, America. I come from a very political family, um, military family. My dad was in, yeah, same here my dad was in the military. I've got uncles, great uncles in the military. My grandfather was in the military. Um, my father-in-law was in the military, like, or was in the military. So I, I literally am surrounded by people who have served. And so I was super pro military. And, uh, I, I read some of the church fathers, you know, talking about, you know, we have no allegiance. I think Tertull- it was Tertullian who talked about how we have, you know, we offend the Romans cause we don't worship the gods of the Romans and we don't participate with the Romans and, in 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 different, you know, different, um, church fathers. And then, um, landing somewhere in the end about this nonviolent resistive understanding is that, you know, like for the majority of my time as a Christian, I've completely ignored the sermon on the Mount and realizing that there's much more to Jesus than his blood. <laughs> and, um, you know, the first thing that challenged that view for me was definitely nonviolence as well. Um, I just could not figure out how, I, I still am still trying to learn my best how to make that a reality, you know, how to live those things out, um, I think. But for me, I think the big one of the big turning points was when um, Osama bin Laden was killed. And I remember like getting on Facebook or something and all these Christian people I knew were just like rejoicing, you know, just rejoicing in this man's death. And I was just like, something's not right here. Something about this whole situation is not right. And I, I still wasn't willing to carry it as far as I do now. But in that time, I was thinking, you know what? We should not rejoice in violence. We should not rejoice in this man's death. Maybe we sh- maybe it's okay yeah. to celebrate that justice was served in some measure. But we should not be joyful that someone has lost their life. And at that point, you know, I still in my thinking, I was like, you know, we should not be super joyful that someone lost their life and is probably burning in hell for eternity, you know. Um, and so I remember that kind of being a beginning place for me. And then later I just, it was like, I don't know my, I got scales fell off my eyes, I guess. And I was just like, you know, what have I been doing this whole time? I've been calling myself a Christian and I don't do, I'm not doing anything that Jesus said doing the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not even pretending like it exists. You know what I mean? Like I'm much more 
you know, ready to like uh, emulate David killing Goliath than I am about Jesus. You know, <laughs> like, I'm more ready to throw a stone than I am to bear a cross. And um, it really began. It, that definitely really led to me um, questioning a lot of things. And I think one of the the first major books I kind of fell onto in that uh, regard was um, Zahn's A Farewell to Mars. When he does he, which is typically really more nationalism than than necessarily violence, but that was a part of it, and that kind of just put the last nail in the coffin for me. I think his book um, just echoed a lot of what I what I had at that point learned about the early church um, and the early church fathers and how they responded to war and violence and and things like that. And um, so, hearing a modern voice kind of helped validate those voices that I had encountered before. Um, was there any particular, I guess, person or, um, you know, or I guess, you know, let's get to this, you know, the Anabaptist tradition, as far as the nonviolence, is that the thing that captivated you the most, how they embodied the Sermon on the Mount or is there, is there other things? What is the thing that makes you just want to identify, I guess, as Anabaptist primarily? I mean, there's so much in the Anabaptist tradition that I love. Nonviolence is definitely a huge part uh, the next biggest thing would be how they view Jesus as the center of everything, both in terms of, <clears throat> you know, the Christian life, what you're just talking about. We don't go to David to learn how to live. We go to Jesus. Um, but also in terms of how we interpret the Bible. Uh, again, it all has to be filtered through, well, what did Jesus say about it? Um, and the earlier Anabaptists may not have taken that quite as far. Uh, you know, that they might have had a more conservative approach uh, to the Old Testament, but their focus was always on Jesus, and whether they would say that the Bible was wrong in other places or not, at the very least, Jesus needs to take priority. And if we don't understand the rest, that's fine. But uh, yeah, the, the centrality of Jesus is huge. Um, I also uh, like the lower ecclesiology of Anabaptism, um, and this is something I've kind of gone back and forth on in in my whole spiritual uh, journey. One of the earliest uh, books I read that even before the whole hell thing was um, Frank Viola's Pagan Christianity. And that one kind of, uh, so he's, he's arguing for organic church or house church um, and contrasting it with more institutional churches where, you know, a pastor gets up and preaches a sermon and the congregation listens and then they leave and then they repeat it once or twice a week. And that's pretty much it. Um, so that kind of, for quite a while, pushed me very strongly toward that simple organic church model to the point where I was uh, rather negative toward institution institutional churches. Um, I think that was a bit too far uh, for quite a while. I've come to the point where I have a healthy appreciation for all different perspectives on how we do church and uh, you know what, what the format takes. But personally, I still very much prefer that simple gathering, um, just everyone on an equal page, talking and sharing and loving one another. Uh, nothing wrong with a more institutional format, but uh, just for myself, that's where I grow best and learn best, is in a much more simple environment. Um all that's coming back to Anabaptism. <laughs> Anabaptism uh, is very much like that. They're, they're not all about uh, big fancy sermons with the pastors and all this. They do have pastors, but it's a much more non-hierarchical, uh, simple way of doing things that uh, I really appreciate. So my views on ecclesiology, too, can kind of fit in with Anabaptism a lot better than they can with, say, Eastern Orthodoxy, which as much and I love in a lot of other ways, I, I just can't do the whole, you know, guys in robes and incense and all that. Again, no judgment on, on that. It's just that's not my preference. I, to I totally understand. For me, like I was like I said, I was in the Pentecostal ch charismatic church, but it was very organic. It was a house church for the longest time. Um, mm -hmm. So it's very kind of grassroots, kind of organic, kind of um, stuff. And we, of course, we... Uh, being similarly God, there wasn't a lot of there's like a denominate loose hierarchy that really at the end of the day means nothing. Um except there's people getting paid to hold positions. But other than that, there's really not a you know, you're pretty much a church is autonomous. Um 
and so like I, I mm-hmm. kind of, you know, I came to faith and that's when I really, really, I guess, came alive as far as my um, Christian walk as a teenager was in that kind of grassroots, like non-traditional, non-liturgical kind of thing. And now here I am on the other side of all that. And I love, love like high church liturgy. I love being in those services, like, like Anglican services or Catholic and Methodist kind of gives me the best of both worlds because our church is still very traditional. So there's liturgy, but it's kind of liturgy light, you know, <laughs> it's not, it's not as heavy as, you know, the Catholic church or the Orthodox church. And so like, I love all of that, but at the same time, um, I'm still with, like, I'm with you 100% on the other area. And so, like, I've been trying to hold those two things in tension, you know? And so I think I need both for me to be as healthy of a follower as Jesus as I can be, I think. Uh, but, and that's, sure. that's one thing I, I did, I did like about Anabaptism was just the, the high, the high, I was always distrustful of hierarchies. Always. Um, I don't, I've always been that way. I've always had problems with authority. So, um, naturally I'm going to lean towards an, an area where it's not so much an overbearing structure of, you know, supervisors over, you know, uh, or bishops or, or whatever, but I definitely can relate to that more organic approach. And I'm kind of one of those people now that I, I feel like I need both. I need like the high church liturgy and which, and you know, like, I'm I'm about to start working towards ordination in the UMC church, which is something six years ago I'd never imagined in my whole life I would be doing. Um, but at the same time, like I still like those organic kind of non non structured so much, or which is kind of very reminiscent of the Pentecostalism that I was a part of. Um, relaxed, and I I'm a big kind of person on like. Um, Sermons that are more dialogue than just teaching all the time, you know, and I, I like those kind of settings mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and so Anabaptism, you, so w- what denomination were you actually a part of prior, I guess? What, you know, I know you was fundamental, kind of fun, evangelical fundamentalist, but was there a specific kind of place that kind of you came from? Or I know, I think I remember you talking about your family being missionaries and, and different things like that. So, but I wasn't sure what kind of denominational background you actually came from. Yeah. So, uh, my parents were missionaries with what's, what's called the evangelical Methodist church. Uh, and if you Google that, you'll come up with a different denomination by the exact same name that has no affiliation. They're basically just a very small, practically independent fundamentalist, uh, denomination. Uh, and even though they, claim the name Methodist, um, they're more Whitfieldian Methodist than yeah. Wesleyan Methodist because they're full Calvinists. Um, so yeah, basically very, very conservative fundamentalist Calvinist uh, would be the, the gist of the denomination. Um, and today, actually, my, my dad's a pastor in a conservative Presbyterian wow. church. Um, but anyway, yeah, really, really conservative fundamental Calvinist. Um, and that was basically where I was uh, up until I started working for Answers and Genesis. I kind of shifted on, you know, I mentioned house church and Calvinism, uh, dropped that bit uh, earlier on while working at Fundamentalist before the big changes started happening that got me booted out and on the the major journey of shifting. But right, yeah, that, cool that's deal. my background. And since, you know, this is indeed a podcast about dead guys... What person from church history would you say has had the most profound influence on your life and why? Most profound influence, probably C.S. Lewis. Lewis. Um, Yeah, he, uh, like, it's not so much that I can point to him and say, I believe this because of C.S. Lewis, but he was the first one to really capture my imagination with theology and make it interesting and make me realize that this is actually something I can enjoy studying. And, uh, you know, it's actually, it's interesting. It's not just this dry, boring stuff. Um, and of course reading him back in my fundamentalist days, there were places all over where I was like, this guy's a heretic, (laughs) you know, he believed in inclusivism. He didn't believe in inerrancy, uh, all, all these things. And, you know, of course, today I'd look back and say, well, he's actually quite conservative compared to where I am. But um, 
as a fundamentalist, he was the most progressive voice that I ever got a chance to read. Um, so in many ways, yeah, he just kind of got me interested in this stuff and launched my journey and gave me f- some freedom to explore these areas and think outside of the box a little bit of what I've been raised in. Uh, so for all, all those sort of reasons, it's not so much the specific things he said, but just the, the direction he put me on, uh, I'd say C.S. Lewis has had the that's most That's awesome. Influence. That's, you know, that's your, your kind of take on that's been m- much more interesting, I guess, than anyone else I've asked so far. Cause most of the people, the most profound person or whatever is typically has been someone on the other side of their transition, you know, or someone who's, um, hmm kind of spark that leaf from fundamentalism or from whatever mindset they had prior and some radical change. And so I I really liked how you put that, that, you know, it wasn't so, it's not necessarily so much as theology so much as it was that he, in in a sense, his life and his work encouraged you um, to dig deeper and to learn to enjoy that, you know, this was something to be enjoyed and loved and something that would have in many ways give you life um, I, I, I think that's mm-hmm. so awesome. Yeah. And for me, like C.S. Lewis, I've liked C.S. Lewis. Um, when I read him as a teenager, I was always like, why not? I, like in my mind, all the people that talked to me about him were like fundamentalist Baptist. And so I read him, I was like, why do they like him? Like, you know, nothing about, you know, his like sympathetic yeah. as far as like evolution and his stuff with inerrancy. And I was like, he's Anglican. He's not, you know, like in my head for the longest time, I was just convinced that Lewis was Baptist because that's the only people that talked to me about him. Um, <laughs> I don't know why it was just a week. Well, and he, he's Anglican and, you know, go ahead, go. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say he's Anglican and Anglo Catholic at that, you know, it's, he, he's about as far from, conservative evangelicalism as you can get honestly today i still don't know why they love him so much with the possible exception of that right. narnia is great which <laughs> narnia is great that's the only thing so my I've favorite read of books his. of all time i've so. never read i have uh, a copy of the line the witch in the wardrobe <laughs> that was published or like printed in 1960 and it's got the uh it's got the mm. illustrations in it and everything it's on my shelf but i've never i have all the books i've never read them um and like my when I oh man okay <laughs> seriously when we stop this podcast just just go start reading them right now do yourself you know, it's funny is that like I've always wanted to I just never gotten around to it um I read majority I think the only I guess fiction I read by him was Screw Tape Letters but um it was really cool Screw Tape Letters is okay it's not in my opinion his best work of fiction um his space trilogy is also fantastic after you read Narnia and see read I know about those and those seem super interesting to me but I still I I have all of the Narnia books I've just never done it but there's there's things like I'm I'm familiar yeah. with some of the theology that he brings out in the books and and you know like kind of like how he kind of critiques PSA a little bit and you know that and then how mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's not so much that he critiques it as that he presents right. more of a ransom theory in it. So it's it's not like speaking against PSA, but the theory he does put forth is much right. more aligned to ransom. Uh, a little bit of Chris Chris's victor, right? Than and then I think in what the last battle, there's the whole scene. This kind of points to some kind of hopeful universalism, um, where yeah, totally. So there's a uh, this soldier who's been serving the the false god all the time and at the end he <clears throat> uh finds himself uh essentially saved for lack of a better term uh and he's like he's talking to aslan he's like you know why why am i here i served this other god my whole days and <clears throat> as in i'm paraphrasing because i don't have it in front of me but basically it's like you know all the the good you did in this this guy's name i attributed it to myself uh because you did it <clears throat> sincerely without knowing who i truly was and now you do know who i truly am so yeah the very strong, inclusive sort of. Yeah. And you know, what's funny to me is like knowing those things. And like when I met my wife, like she had read like as a kid, like the Chronicles of Narnia and you know, like their church, they love CS Lewis or whatever. And they were very fundamentalist Baptists. I was like, wait, did your parents, you know, like our parents wouldn't let her read Harry Potter. They let her read the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's like, I'm like, you know, this guy is pushing these ideas that are completely contrary to everything you, you believe. And so I, I could not ever reconcile it in my head. Um, Doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, even right now, like I have two uh, students who go to a private Baptist Christian school um, that are in my youth group. And like, their school is obsessed with C.S. Lewis. Like they have a whole class on C.S. Lewis 
And I, I asked him, I was like, you know, why? And he was like, I have no idea because there's so much stuff that they don't agree with about Lewis, but they love him. Um, and so that's, that's something that's always been really interesting to me as well is just how not fundamentalist kind of, um, and like you, like you, I would say, you know, looking back now, I'm, I'm very much more progressive than say Lewis, Lewis is very much more conservative than I am today. But then, you know, he was, he was way out there in my opinion on a lot of stuff that he thought or said. Um, so that's cool that, you know, he kind of spurred this. Uh, love of theology in your life. And I think for me, um, I didn't really have that so much. I had, I was more, when in the beginning I had these experiences and it just led me to dig and dig and dig. And, uh, cause like I, the first Christian like literature I read <laughs> once I got saved was the whole Left Behind <clears throat> series. So if you can just imagine how screwed up I was. Oh, um, yeah. I read oh, all yeah. of them at the age of 13. Like that was the first thing I did after I got saved. I started <laughs> and I read every one of them and it was uh, as damaging as yeah. anyone could imagine. And um, <laughs> so <laughs> it, it was definitely, uh, I, I think I would have much rather if I could go, I'm not saying I would change if I go back, but I think things would be a little bit different if maybe I would have started with the Chronicles of Narnia and not the Left Behind series. But, you know, it happens the way that it happens. Um, and so as far as, you know, I guess who, if C.S. Lewis is your most, um, I guess, profound influence and not necessarily specifically as theology, um, I, I definitely think he's still relevant for today. But who's somebody, and, it, and maybe it could still sure. be Lewis, but who would you, someone from church history who you feel like is very relevant for us today um, in the state of American evangelicalism? Like if you could like turn, I guess, somebody over to somebody and be like, hey, you need to read this person because your theology is whack and they're going to help you out a lot. Who, who would it be? I'm going to say Athanasius and his book on the incarnation of the word of God. Uh, It is an immensely readable uh, book. Uh, It's very short. You know, I think a lot of times when we, especially if you haven't actually read the church fathers, you kind of get scared that they're going to be all, you know, hard to read and dense and all this. And some of it is. But Athanasius on the Incarnation of the Word of God is just incredibly read- readable. And it just hits all the points of what's wrong in evangelical theology today and presents this beautiful alternative. Uh, I think every single Christian needs to read on the Incarnation I second of the Word that. of God. I, um, I first read uh, on the Incarnation on my phone. I downloaded a PDF copy one night when I was working night shift at an old job I worked and I read the whole thing and I was just like, Oh my gosh, you know, like I, I, and since then I own like several copies. It's like every time I see it, I have to buy it. I'm not sure quite why, (laughs) but every time I see it out of like a used bookstore, I buy another copy. I definitely, definitely, I definitely echo that. I think that, that was a definitely, that would definitely be a good one. And I think that goes back to the whole, you know, incarnational theology that we were talking about earlier. Um, and the very anemic incarnational theology that evangelicalism has. Um, and also, I'm sure you know this, but for uh, listeners, get an edition that has C.S. Lewis preface to it. Uh, he wrote a preface to uh, a certain translation of On the Incarnation of the Word of God, and that preface has since been uh, attached to a bunch of different versions. That's worth the price alone. Uh, you know, I've never read that one. I've never, um, I've never read the, you know, it's it's funny is like, you're like the 12th person to recommend that to me in the last year. Like, because I talk about Athanasius, oh, have you read the one with C.S. Lewis's preface to it? I'm like, no. And they're like, oh, you really need to. Uh, so that's interesting. Well, you know what, that, that preface is available free online too. Uh, I can send you the link for that. Maybe yeah, let's do it. Send me the link. Notes. We'll definitely put it in the if show notes because um, if we can get people reading more Church Father like Athanasius, I think we'll be. I think things will definitely be a better world. Uh, <laughs> we'll definitely have a better, at least somewhat hopeful um, future. I think as far as incarnational theology, I, Ath- Athanasius was definitely super influential. Specifically, that book it was very, very influential. I think when I first kind of started um, trying to figure out what this whole Jesus thing was really about after I was done, you know? Um, so yes, be sure to send me that, send me that yep. link and I'll uh, be sure to add it to the show notes for people to uh, check it out. Um, and so as we're kind of wrapping up here, Chuck, 
One last thing um, I tend to ask everybody, and I know we've just talked about two dead people, Athanasius and C.S. Lewis, but other than those two, can you think of one person from church history that you would bring back to the dead to sit down with over a cup of coffee or a cold beer or whatever it is you like to brunch? I don't care. But who would you bring back other than those two? Uh, in a heartbeat, George McDonald. George McDonald. All right. Uh, Why? Not even a question there. Um, now, interestingly, he he, uh, he wasn't so much influential in my journey. <clears throat> I've kind of heard his name for years, and really only this year uh, have I really started digging into his writings. And if you are my friend on Facebook or follow me on Goodreads, you'll just see that I've been kind of binging on George MacDonald this year. Um, the guy was just fantastic. He lived in uh, you know the, the 1800s, early 1900s, uh, which means all his works are in public domain, by the way. It's all free. Um, and he just came to this, this picture of God. He, he, as far as I know, he wasn't reading much in the church fathers and he, he didn't have access to a lot of the same people that I look to as influences today, but he just came to this picture of God that is so beautiful and Christ-like. Um, and it's interesting, C.S. Lewis, uh, getting back to him again, called George MacDonald his master and said that <clears throat> he imagines he's never written a word that wasn't influenced by George MacDonald. Um, but as many people are, are in love with C.S. Lewis, they don't know about George MacDonald that much. Um, he was a universalist, uh, and all of his theology was focused on Jesus at the center and God as father. And so his thing was, if it would be wrong for a human father to do something, how could we ever ascribe that to God? You know, so obviously... It would never be right for any human father to burn his children for all of eternity. So, of course, that can't be true of God. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, he, he wrote uh, actual, like, straight theology in his Unspoken Sermons, is what it's called, uh, and a couple other books. He also wrote tons and tons of fiction and fantasy. Uh, I don't know. I just, I love everything I've read from the guy, and I want to sit down and just Pick his brain on everything. Awesome. Yeah, I actually have, um, yeah. well, I had Unspoken Sermons, uh, a copy of uh, his Unspoken Sermons, and I gave it to someone. And now that I'm thinking about this, I don't remember who it was, and I'm kind of mad about it. But, uh, yeah, I, I knew I knew that he was influential on C.S. Lewis, <laughs> but I did not know that he didn't really have, um, like he wasn't really like deep in, I guess, some of the more... Um, theological minds of the church like you said you know the church fathers and things like that you wasn't really attached to those things or even drawing from those but he still came to all these different conclusions and i can't i can't say that with absolute certainty i've just not been able to find anywhere where he references anyone like that and the biographies i've read have not pointed out anything like that either it could be he did read some church fathers um but it just doesn't seem that way in anything I've I've seen, and like I said, I've been reading all of his stuff. <laughs> yeah, so, this year. yeah, so it seems like at least maybe to some extent, a lot of his knowledge was very what he experienced, and I guess probably what the love of God yeah. that he came to yeah, experience he, and the ways that he experienced God led him to draw some of these conclusions. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, and he he was he was very big on that whole going to God and learning from God yourself not discrediting human teachers, but also not letting human teachers dictate how you relate to God and what you understand about him. Just going to God himself, yourself, because he's your father and he wants to teach you gotcha. better than any That's humans awesome. can. That's awesome. Well, Chuck, it has been great having you on, man. I've so enjoyed our conversations. I feel like, at least on my end, we're kind of some kindred spirits. Yeah, we too. got some very similar kind of uh, walked on some of the same paths, I would think, and come to some of the same conclusions. Definitely. Uh, so it's been great having you on, and I'm just so so appreciative that you've um, you were just gracious enough to take time out of your evening and um, come on the show and talk to me about Anabaptism and George McDonald and C.S. Lewis and what it meant by you know questioning eternal conscious torment and the price that you had to pay in the long run and and where you are now your journey has been super awesome to hear about um and i'm stoked for the days ahead for you and uh just following your blog and, and all that cool stuff and um so again thank you for coming on thank you so much for having me it's been a blast
So guys, that was Chuck McKnight. You can find him at hippieheretic.com or on Pathios, um, which is a platform for interfaith and and non-religious dialogue that is just super cool. He's got a blog there, Hippie Heretic, uh, and you can follow along with Chuck and the rest of his journey, and you can find all the links to Chuck's work and um, his website in the show notes as well as the link to that um, preface by C.S. Lewis to... um, on the Incarnation by St. Athanasius. And so, guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, be sure to subscribe to, to Chuck's blog and, and stay up to date and just uh, continue with him and following it with him in this journey as he can, continues to, to travel down the wild paths, as we would say here. Um, or I would say, um, I don't know why I said there's we, there's only me here running this thing. But um, as I would say, traveling down the wild paths of the saints, sinners, heretics, and mystics of this wild thing we call the church. Um, and so if you will just I encourage you to subscribe to his blog you're going to get all kinds of good stuff there and again a reminder subscribe to Signpost so you can stay up to date uh, if you subscribe to Signpost you can be a part of our Slack community which is uh, right now severely lacking and I will admit to my shame And uh, but I'm, I'm hoping to kind of revamp that here in the fall and get that back going uh, so if you subscribe to Signpost then you have um, membership access to our Slack community which is a, a communications platform that just really makes it cool where we can discuss all kinds of topics and and all different kind of things uh, all uh, revolving around church history and um, dead guys and ancient future faith and, and all these different other things and so if you subscribe you get that opportunity as well as you get to be up to date on all things coming out and um not that it's necessarily some big perk but typically if you're a subscriber that means you you get everything. If I do publish a work like a devotional, like I did, like in this la- at Lent this past year, then you get it for free. And all you got to do is put your email address in a little box, and there you go. Um, I can't promise that it will be life changing, but I will promise that you know I've put hard work and um, and effort into those resources that I hope will help you in your journey. And so again, thanks everybody. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ.